Uh, well, this is the uh, next to last week of the series called Better that we've been in now for over a month. And uh, I would strongly suggest, if at all possible, not to miss next week because uh, uh, the conclusion of this series, I think, is going to be a great one. So make sure uh, you're here next Sunday. And if you're a guest of ours, we're so glad that you're here. If you're watching online, maybe for the first time, uh, we're glad that you're there wherever you may be or there in Somerset this morning. Uh, if you're a guest of ours or new to the series, uh, we've been doing this series because there is a growing misunderstanding inside and outside the church uh, concerning who Jesus is. Uh, a lot of people misunderstand who Jesus is. Uh, there's a misunderstanding inside and outside the church about what Jesus meant by what Jesus said. A lot of people can quote Jesus, uh, whether they believe in Jesus or not, or follow Jesus or not. It's one thing to know what Jesus said, but it's another thing to know what Jesus meant by what he said. And then there is a misunderstanding about the significance of what Jesus accomplished for us with his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. And the reason that this is so important to me and so important to us as a church and should be important to all of us is that I think it's this misunderstanding which is keeping a lot of people away from faith and causing a lot of folks to walk away from faith. Because missing the right answer to those questions will cause you to ultimately miss Jesus, ultimately miss Jesus, and ultimately miss why Christianity is so much better, better than what you could ever imagine it to be. So for the past few weeks, we've been talking about this better thing that Jesus referred to as the new covenant, a new covenant. And if there's a new covenant, there's an old covenant. And if you weren't here for all of that, I don't have time to catch up entirely. But Jesus looked at a Jewish audience and said, hey, you're well aware of the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant. I want you to know that I have come to fulfill that covenant. That is, I am making that covenant obsolete and outdated. I am establishing a new thing. It is better than the old. I am fulfilling the law, which means you have no moral obligation to the Ten Commandments or to the Old Testament laws. And that was kind of shaking for some of us to understand and realize. But Jesus set us free from the law and Jesus set us free from the penalty of the law. And now Jesus has given us a brand new freedom and this freedom is called grace. A grace that says no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, come on in. Grace that's undeserved, unearned, no strings attached, free for everybody. And that's what Jesus presented to the world. And then we talked about how in this new covenant, there is a new commandment. And this new commandment is a commandment of love. Jesus, he replaced all the old commandments, the 10 commandments, all the other commandments. He replaced all of those commandments with one commandment. And Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, a new commandment I give to you that you'd love one another as I have loved you. In other words, by loving one another, this is how everybody's gonna be able to tell that you're one of my disciples. You're gonna demonstrate your love for God by loving one another. And within this new covenant, and this new commandment, we learned that the most spiritual thing that we can do now as Christians, as followers of Jesus, is to love somebody. The most holy thing that we'll ever do is to love one another. The most righteous thing we will ever do is to love someone because now love is the greatest expression of our faith. And the New Testament shows us over and over again what this looks like. That followers of Jesus who wrote letters which ended up in the New Testament would come along and say, hey, listen, it doesn't matter how much you know as a Christian if you don't love. It doesn't matter how smart you are, how gifted you are as a Christian if you don't love. It doesn't matter how much you attend church or sing songs or do any of that stuff. It doesn't matter how much you pray. It doesn't matter how much you give if you don't love. And so the new commandment replaced all the others and it was just a simple commandment of love. And then we talked about how to obey this new commandment, we have a new potential. 
And this is the Holy Spirit within us, that we are now the temples of the Holy Spirit. God moved out of the temple. God moved into us. Now I can love you like Jesus loved me because Jesus lives within me. And you can love other people like Jesus has loved you because Jesus lives within you. The Holy Spirit lives in you and desires to love people through you. And so now we can all keep this commandment. It's possible to love the unlovable, forgive the unforgivable. It's possible to love and to bless our enemies. This is incredible because Jesus within us is able to love those around us the way that he has loved us because now he lives within us. And then last week we talked about how we have a new perspective, a new perspective of grace and truth. And we noticed how Jesus, he never let truth get in the way of grace nor grace get in the way of truth. And within this new covenant, which has this new commandment of love, now we have this potential to obey this new commandment. And as we have a brand new perspective, because now we see different, we hear different, we process things different. Now we understand that in the new covenant, truth does not trump all. That's what some of us grew up thinking. Truth does not trump all and grace does not trump all. Now truth and grace trumps all. And we learn a brand new perspective. We have a brand new perspective about God and Jesus reveals to us that God is not angry about sin. God's not angry about sin and Christians need to know that. If God is not angry about sin, then why are Christians so angry about sin? If God is not angry about everybody's sin, then why are you angry about everybody's sin, specifically everybody else's sin? Because yours, you're okay with. Every once in a while it bothers you, but by and large, you're okay with your sin. It's just everybody else's sin that you're not okay with. But a brand new perspective, God's not angry. God's not angry. And then God, when he looks at people, he doesn't see lawbreakers as much as he sees people who are breaking themselves against the law. And it's a new perspective. Sin doesn't make God angry. Sin breaks God's heart because of what it does to the people that he loves. Sin breaks God's heart because he knows that sin breaks us. And sin breaks those around us. And so we have this brand new perspective where Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Grace, go and leave your life of sin. Truth. That Jesus doesn't give up one for the sake of the other. He'll never stop saying, neither do I condemn you. He'll never stop saying, go and leave your life of sin. And so it gives us a brand new perspective about how we're to deal with one another, how we're to deal with those inside, outside the church, because that's how Jesus has dealt with us. But today, I wanna to talk about something that I think is so important, and I think that it's getting us ready to, to park this series next week. But what I wanna to talk to us about today is a new reality, a brand new reality, because within this new covenant, this new commandment, this new potential, this new perspective, once we are brought into this, it is a brand new reality. What once was is no longer. The old is no longer reality, but the new is reality. And Jesus, he invites us out of an old reality and into a new reality. And this new reality begins with just an invitation. And he invites us out of what we were to be who we've always been able to be with a relationship with God. He calls us out of our sin and he calls us into a better way of life. He calls us out of our doubts and he causes us to a faith. He calls us to a faith that can walk in spite of some of our doubts and in spite of some of our questions. He invites us to something far better than the current reality that we have. And in this, he does it with a simple invitation. And the invitation of Jesus is so different than the invitation of religion all around the world, religion all throughout history. Religion always invites us to do something. But Jesus, he invites us to something. 
And, and this is so new for some of us, and this is so much better for all of us. A lot of us grew up in an idea of church and faith and God where it seemed like the preacher got up or somebody got up and it was like they were always telling us to do something or asking us to do something or requiring us to do something. That we had to do something for God first. And then once we did something for God first, then God would reciprocate in some way that was beneficial to us. And that was the motivation to get us to do what we needed to do so that we could get God to do what we wanted him to do. Clear? Okay, so we always heard this message of, I need you to do this in order for God to do this for you. That's religion. That's, that's religion in all shape, forms, and sizes. If Christianity ever gives the message to do something, we have missed the message of our founder. We have missed the message of the New Testament. Jesus did not invite us to do something in order to be loved by God, accepted by God, favored by God. No, he didn't invite us to do something, but he invited us to something. And Jesus invited us to life. That was the greatest invitation that Jesus offered us. He says, I have come that you may have life. He says the thief and sin, you know, and all of that, it comes to steal, kill, and destroy because that's what sin does. That's what the enemy does. Wherever there's sin, wherever the enemy's working at in the world and in your world and in your life and in your family and in your relationships and in your finances, it always steals from you. It always kills something and it always destroys. But Jesus said, I have come to offer you a new reality. A reality that is separate from thievery, destruction, and death. I'm inviting you where life reigns, where life is the new reality. I'm calling you out of the death of your trespasses and sin, and I'm calling you to life. And you would think that a simple invitation, like leave death and come to life, would be like a no-brainer. But for many of us, because we misheard the message or because the message was miscommunicated to us or we misunderstood or misrepresented to us, we didn't understand that Jesus was inviting us to something without us offering anything to him first. That Jesus offers to us without us even offering anything to him. Because as we've talked about, we have nothing to offer him. We have nothing that he needs, nothing that he wants, save me. And so he offers me something without me having to offer him anything. And he offers life, new life, eternal life, a better life. And within this better life comes a fresh perspective, new purpose, new ideas about who God is and what God is like, a brand new hope during difficult days, faith that's able to stand in face of my doubts and my greatest questions. He invites us into life, a new reality that is different from the old. And so here's where we're gonna start today. We're gonna start with a passage that we've looked at multiple weeks uh, throughout this series. And this is the night that Jesus is gonna be arrested before he is betrayed and before he is crucified. But the night that he spends with his disciples in the upper room, he is celebrating Passover. And this is where we're gonna start to get to where we're going today. And this is what Luke records about that particular night. He says that when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles, they reclined at the table. And he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. 
And of course, at this particular time, you know, the disciples, they're a little bit hard-headed, a little bit hard to learn. They don't really listen all the time. And, and he's been giving them little breadcrumbs, breadcrumbs all along the way to tell them that he's going to go to Jerusalem. There he's going to be crucified. And he's going to be flogged and he's going to suffer, but they've just not really been listening. It's not clicked entirely. And so again, he says, guys, I want to celebrate Passover with you. I want to do with you what our forefathers have done with one another for 1400 years. And in the time of Jesus, for 1400 years, the nation of Israel, once a year, has observed the feast of Passover. And at Passover, they would take a lamb, a male lamb, without spot, without blemish, they would bring it into their house, and for three or so days, they would examine that lamb and make sure that it had no spot, no blemish. And then at the appointed time, they would slay that lamb and then they would celebrate a supper with one another. And it was a symbolic supper. And the reason that they would do this was to look back upon the days when the nation of Israel were slaves to Egypt. And every time they celebrated Passover from the days of Moses to the days of Jesus, they looked back to when God raised up Moses to deliver the nation of Israel from the slavery of Egypt. And Jesus said, I want to do with you what our forefathers have done with one another for 1400 years. And it says, and he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body given. Talk to me. What does this say? For one more time for you. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Guys, I want you to look at this piece of bread. I know you don't fully understand what I'm about to do for you, but when it's clear what I'm about to do for you on the other side of what I'm about to do for you, when it's clear every time that you do this with each other, I want you to think of my body because what I'm about to allow to happen to my body, I want you to know I'm doing it for you. Guys, I'm about to suffer and I'm going to be put to death. And it's going to be bloody, it's going to be gory, it's going to be painful, it's going to be horrible, it's going to be heinous. But guys, I want you to think about every time that you do this with one another after we do this together tonight, I want you to think about the fact that what I'm about to do, I'm doing it for you. I never want you to forget that what I'm about to do, that I'm doing it for you. And he was speaking to the disciples in the room and he was speaking to humanity past, present, and future in that moment. He's speaking to all of us. And then he goes on, he says, in the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out again, talk to me for you, for you. Guys, when you think about the bread, I want you to think about my body and guys, there's going to be blood and it's going to be bad. And when you think about this cup of wine, I want you to think about the blood that I'm going to shed for you. And, and Jesus he picks his words so strategically. We're going to talk more about this in just a moment. But in this moment, he picks his words so strategically. One, he wants them from this point on to never forget why Jesus is about to do what Jesus is going to do. He knows that for the moment, it's going to be super sensitive. It's going to be super emotional. When they see, about, when they see what's about to happen, it's going to be so bothersome to them. It's going to break their hearts. It's going to be horrible. It's going to be terrible. But over time, they're gonna get a little insensitive to it. Over time, they're gonna become a little callous to it because that's what happens to us. And we get tempted to forget what Jesus did. And more specifically, we forget the personal nature of why Jesus did what Jesus did. And Jesus said, I never want you to forget that what I'm about to do, I'm doing for you. And in this moment, you can plug your name in there and I can plug my name in there. 
that when you see the bread, I want you to think about the fact that what I did, I did for you, Trevor. When you think about the cup and you think about the wine and you think about the blood that I'm gonna shed, I want you to know that I did it for you, Trevor. I want you to know why I'm doing it. I don't want you to ever forget why I'm doing it. And here at Passover, here at Passover, I want you to reinvent this supper. And from now on, we're not gonna think about what God did through Moses for the nation of Israel. But from now on, you're gonna think about what God did for you through me and what I'm about to do for you. Now, Matthew, Matthew records the same event, but he records it a little bit different. And here's how Matthew records the words of Jesus. He says it this way, this is the covenant. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so Matthew picks up on a detail that Luke doesn't record, that Luke doesn't write about, because obviously for Matthew, forgiveness was a very big deal because Matthew had been an excommunicated part of the religious system in the Jewish nation. He had not been, he'd not been allowed to go to the temple. He, he was told that God had no place for people like him. So obviously when he hears the word forgiveness, he zones in on it. And so Jesus that night, he says, hey, when you take this cup, I want you to think about this new covenant that is sealed, that is made, that is promised that is confirmed by my blood. It is for the forgiveness of sins. And now Jesus, he's beginning to paint the picture of the new reality that he's inviting the world into. And at the same time, he's reminding us about the old reality that he's calling us out of. This new reality is a reality of forgiveness. Now, this is, this is so, such, you know, such a big deal. When you think about sin, you gotta understand that sin has a penalty. Every sin, no matter what the sin is, sin has a penalty. That's what we learn throughout the scriptures and the story of God, both the Old and the New Testaments both. They just convince us in the clearest of terms that sin has a penalty and that sin brings with it death and destruction. Still kills, it destroys, and it brings death. However, Jesus said, I'm inviting you out of that reality into a reality of forgiveness. Forgiveness from your sin. What I'm about to do is for you so that you can have forgiveness from your sin. Now, forgiveness, it's not just about going to heaven when you die. That's why we've sold Jesus so cheaply and grace so cheaply, and we've undersold what Christianity is all about because we just made it about heaven and hell. We just made it about, hey, where you go once you die. Jesus said, let me tell you what forgiveness from sin is. Forgiveness from sin is that you are being set free from the penalty of your sin. And the penalty of your sin is death. That's what death always comes after. It comes after sin. Sin walks before death and destruction. That's the penalty for sin in any package or any label that it comes in. And Jesus said, when you get forgiven from your sin, you are set free from the penalty of your sin. You get called out of a reality of death and destruction into a reality of forgiveness. And not only is it forgiveness from the penalty of sin, which is death, but it is forgiveness and it is freedom from the power of sin. That Jesus in some way is gonna do something with his death and his resurrection that is going to free us from the penalty of sin and free us from the power of sin. And that's the reason the New Testament looks at believers and says, hey, this is what you need to understand. Sin is no longer your master. Because once upon a time, God's people, Israel, they were slaves to Egypt. But God raised up a man by the name of Moses. 
and they celebrated Passover and God delivered them. He rescued them from the tyranny of Pharaoh. But something far better in the new covenant is that while you were slaves to the penalty and the power of sin, God raised up his son, Jesus. And Jesus died in your place to free you from the penalty of sin because he took the penalty for you. And not only did he set you free from the penalty of sin, but he set you free from the power of sin. The power of sin has been broken and sin is no longer your master. And that's what Jesus is inviting us and the world into. That's what he was inviting us out of. Now, Jesus did not mix words. And this is so profound. I would love to come back and talk about this. I think I would love to do an entire series about this. But in this moment, Jesus connects his future impending death with history. Jesus connects his future death with history. Now, think about this for just a moment. Now, just think about this. Put on your thinking cap and just think about this for a moment. If we believe that God is providential and God is sovereign and as a Jesus follower, I do then that means that I believe that God could have arranged the death of his son on any day of the calendar. But God did not arrange the death of his son on the day of atonement like we might imagine. Even though Jesus was the atonement for our sin, God chose to associate the death of his son with the feast of Passover so that we would understand ultimately what Jesus was accomplishing on the cross and what it means for us. Because everyone can know what Passover was. Passover was about when God raised up Moses and delivered a nation from slavery. But this new covenant and this new Passover lamb, Jesus, reminds us that God raised up his son in order to set us free from the sin and death and the tyranny of sin and death. And so Jesus chose to associate his death with Passover, something in history to bring clarity to his future death, but beyond that. Jesus uses a very specific term that night in the upper room with his followers. He uses the term new covenant. He says, I'm about to make a new covenant with you. Now here's the thing. <laughs> this idea of the new covenant was actually an old idea. The idea of the new covenant was not a new idea, it was actually an old idea. Matter of fact, in the Old Covenant, we find that the Old Covenant, from the very beginning of the Old Covenant, was in some way pointing always to the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, we find that God made the promise that one day, even though there is a covenant that we call the Old Covenant, God said, one day, I'm going to promise that I'm going to make a New Covenant. So this idea that Jesus you know, brings to the surface, this, this term New Covenant, was not actually new. And this is important because Jesus reaches back into history to help us understand what he's about to do in the future with his death. And so Jesus reaches back into history 500 years. And 500 years before Jesus showed up, the nation of Israel, their story is much like our story. They would rebel and then repent and rebel against God and then repent, rebel and repent, rebel and repent. And every time that they would chase after their sin and chase after their idols, God would send prophets and call them back to himself. But they were a stubborn people. I know, not like you, but like some of us. Stubborn, where we think we know better than God and we would rather chase after our pleasure than chase after the one who loves us. And so they would do this over and over again. And God, he kept telling them, if you don't return to me, your sin, your sin is gonna bring upon you death and destruction. 
Not me bringing so much the death and destruction, but you are inviting upon yourself death and destruction because of your sin, because that's what sin always does. It brings death, it brings destruction. It always takes from you, it always destroys something in your life, and it always kills something. And so the nation refused and refused and refused and refused to turn back to God. And so the penalty for their sin was death and destruction. The consequence of their sin was death and destruction. And the Babylonians, a man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar, basically who was ruling the world at that particular time, around 586, he came to town, he stormed the walls of Jerusalem and he destroyed the temple, he destroyed the city of Jerusalem, he slaughtered thousands, he took the others into captivity. And there in the smoke of the destruction and the ruins of a destroyed temple, a destroyed city, and thousands of lives that have been lost, and others that have been taken captive as slaves to Babylon, as the destruction and death of sin had visited upon the nation of Israel, the prophet Jeremiah stands up. And in the smoke of Jerusalem, he talks about a better time. Not a time that was, but a time that will be. And in the smoke and the ruins of a destroyed temple and a destroyed city, Jeremiah said, it seems as though it can't get any worse, and maybe that's true, but I want you all to know there's something better on the way. And 500 years before Jesus ever showed up, the prophet Jeremiah said, behold, the days are coming, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. 500 years before Jesus ever showed up, before he ever spoke the term. And then Jeremiah, he said, let me tell you about this new reality, this new covenant, which is coming. And it's gonna be so much better than the covenant that you know. He says, this is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their mind and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And then he says, this is, the, this is the capstone. This is what makes the new covenant so much better. This is the new reality of what God is gonna do. He says, for under this new covenant, I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. Now you think about that. You can't forget your sin. But God says, I'm gonna make a way where I forget your sins. You may continue to hold it against yourself, but I'm gonna promise a day and I'm gonna promise a way where I will never hold against you even what you hold against you. I will remember your sins no more. And that is what Jesus chose to connect his future death to. He chose to connect it to an old message. Hundreds of years old, thousands of years old. To remind us that the old covenant, obsolete and outdated as it is, it was always pointing to a new covenant. It was always pointing to something better of which the reality is I will forgive you of your sins and I will remember them no 
more. I will not hold your sin against you any longer. I will set you free from the penalty of your sin and from the power of sin. And that night, Jesus broke bread and shared the cup with his disciples. He was betrayed. He was arrested. He went through the mockery of trials. And in a message and a story that we all know so well, we've almost become insensitive to it. It doesn't really have an emotional effect on us anymore because in some way we forget what Jesus never wanted us to forget, why he did what he did, that he did it for us. He did it for you and he did it for me. That when he was arrested and they beat him and they spit upon him, that he did it for me and he did it for you. That when they took him and they stripped him of his robe and they exposed his backside from the top of his back down to the bottom of his feet, and they wrapped his hands around a pole or a post. And then Roman soldiers in skill like surgeons reared back with their Roman scourges, leather whips intermingled with bone and glass and rock. The rock to cause deep contusions, the glass and the shards of bone to rip open the flesh, to cut through the tendons and the muscles. Roman soldiers were like surgeons and they could scourge someone within an inch of their life to prepare them for the cross that they, would to bear, that they were to bear. And there Jesus was and he was whipped 39 times for you, for me. Jesus said, I never want you to go a day and forget why I did what I did. If it becomes a movie for you, if it becomes a coloring page for you, if it becomes just a song for you or a sermon for you, if it becomes just, oh, that was nice. I think you've gotten away that he did it for you and he did it for me. That he was whipped 39 times and then they laid the crossbar upon his shoulders. And he carried the crossbar to a place called Golgotha, a mountain called in its day Calvary. The crossbar was attached to the other bar. And as he laid on the ground, his hands were pierced with nails and his feet were pierced with a nail. And it's become also sanitized and romanticized that we forget how gory and the sights and the sounds and the screams and the moans, it all just kind of passes us by. And Jesus says, I want you to know why I did it. I did it for you. And when those nails went through my hands and that nail went through my feet, for you. 
And then we think that they hoisted that cross up and that people looked up at Jesus. But that's not how the Romans crucified people. They didn't hang people high in the sky to crucify them. No, they put them at eye level with the people. And Jesus didn't have a robe around his midsection. Jesus was exposed fully, completely, in all the shame and the embarrassment of the moment. Eyeball to eyeball with the people in the crowds. For you, for me. And there on the cross, God was demonstrating his love for us. There at the cross, we find out what God is most like. There at the cross, we find out how God feels towards all of us. We find out how God feels about the worst of the worst. See, when we think about the cross, and we think about just the image of the cross. It's a necklace to us, it's a t-shirt, it's a coffee cup. It's something we put behind lyrics of songs. And it's just something so normal. But this was the lowest rung of the ladder. This is where the worst of the worst of the first century died because it was the worst death that the world of its time had been able to come up with. And there was Jesus and he said, don't ever forget why for you and for me. Here at the cross, we see how far sin will go. We see how heinous sin really is. And all of its pride, and all of its rebellion, and all of its misuse of power and authority, and all of its arrogance, and all of its discrimination, and all of its oppression, and all of its injustice. When we look at the cross, we see how far sin will go. We see how bad sin is in all of its death, in all of its destruction. But at the same place, on the same cross, we also see how far love will go to the depths that love will take itself, that love will allow its own self to be crucified, to sacrifice himself for the sake of guilty people. God was demonstrating his love for us, that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. And on the cross, he says things like this, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. He looks at a thief and says, today you will be with me in paradise. He shows us what God is like. He shows us how God truly feels about all of us. Because nothing in all of the world has been as unjust that. The cross represents the epitome of injustice, the epitome of the abuse of power and violence. It represents the worst that the world has to offer. And there in the greatest act of injustice of all, because the one, the only one who was perfect, dying in the place and for the imperfect there he suffers the greatest injustice of all. And he says, Father, forgive them. Because he's not thinking about himself, but he's thinking about you. And there he was in our place. And in some way, Jesus, he bore the penalty of our sin and all the death and the destruction that was due us because it was our sin 
That Jesus, he stepped into our place to die for us so that there is no penalty left for our sin. And because the power of sin has now been broken, we can go free and sin is not our master. And he says, I don't want you to ever forget why I did what I did. And then they took his body down. And you need to know that not a single person after Jesus died on the cross was hailing him as a hero. Nobody after his death on the cross was saying, thank you, Savior. Nobody after the cross was saying, that's my guy. Nobody suspected that anything had changed, though everything had changed. No one knew that God had done something that he had promised to do. They all went in fear, not knowing that God had changed everything. And it wasn't until three days later when the gospel writer says, and it was on the first day of the week, early in the morning, when the women went to the tomb and they found a man dressed in white apparel saying, why do you seek for the living among the dead? He is not here, he is risen. And they didn't even believe it. They doubted, it seemed too good to be true, but it was better than that. It was absolutely true. And Jesus did what Jesus always has done and always will do. He went chasing after the ones that went running away. And he found his disciples fishing. He called them over to the beach and he said, let's have breakfast. And there having breakfast with his disciples, he said, I'm not a ghost. Does a ghost have flesh and bone? Touch me. And there he said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses prophets and the Psalms. In other words, the old covenant, it pointed me to the whole time. It pointed to me the whole time. When you read about what Moses said, it's talking about me. When you read about what the prophets say, they're pointing to me. When you read about me in the Psalms, they're pointing to me. And then he opened up their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. And he says to a group of new covenant people, you will never read the pages from the old same again. You will never interpret the old the same again. You have new eyes and new ears. And Jesus, had he had a copy of the scriptures that day, he could have opened up from the very beginning and told of our first parents running away from God in the Garden of Eden. But what did God do? He ran after them. He killed an animal and clothed them with the skin and then he gave them the promise that one day this new reality of death and destruction that you've brought in is all going to change because something better is coming. And maybe he took them to Moses, their champion, the spokesman of the old covenant. He says, remember that day when Moses wanted to see God and God passed before him? Perhaps he opened it up to the book of Exodus and said, you remember guys when it says that the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and mercy. Remember when God told Moses, this is what I'm like. 
Guys, does that sound like anybody to you? And they're like, sounds a lot like you, Jesus. Because it was pointing to me all along. And he took them through the whole story to say, this is our story. Abraham was a liar, but God made him the hero of a nation. David, the greatest king, was an adulterer and a murderer, but God called him a man after his own heart. Tamar practiced prostitution to entrap her father-in-law, but she's in my family tree. Ruth, not even a Gentile, not even a Jewish person, she's a Gentile on public welfare. And she's part of the story. And maybe he took them through all of those stories to say, guys, here's what you need to know. If grace had limits, your heroes of faith would have exposed them. Grace is a new thing. It's always been an old thing, but now it's clear. I have come to offer you better. And when you read the Old Testament from now on, here's what you get. This, this is what you need to know about it. Sin kills people. God loves people. God hates sin because God loves people. And when you chase after sin, God will chase after you. Not to pay you back, but to win you back. That's the story. Old and new. That's your story. That's my story. And if it's not your story, it can be your story. Because he's chasing after you. Not because he's angry. And not to pay you back. So I guess Zach was just telling us that after the, like the first time or the first week of the series, you uh, had a conversation with him about it. So like, what were you thinking about or what, like when you were listening to that, you were thinking, what? Well, you know, when he was showing the, the covers of the magazines, it's just kind of like, for lack of a better word, you know, it's the zeitgeist we're in right now. I hate saying something like that, but that's true where Christianity's fallen away more or less. I mean numbers don't lie and I feel like the journey that I've been on if there's anybody that has been more staunch in their non-belief I, I mean you'd have to show me because that's you know that, that's how I was how did you feel about Christianity God the Bible or, or what you know well I, I thought it's just kind of honestly nonsensical. You could do things to be in God's favor, and then there was stuff you could do to fall out. So it felt like you were always having to try to keep yeah. self right with God constantly. Well, yeah, it's constant ebb and flow of like feeling like I did good, <laughs> you know, on Monday. By Wednesday, I was, you know, I'd fallen away a little bit. I always felt like it was a, a race to stay in, in God's good graces. And I mean, that gets got tiring for me. and just seemed impossible and the more impossible it seems the more I wanted to just forget about it just just live life and not not worry about this stuff because it just seems kind of silly you know I, I stopped believing in high school you know and I mean that was that but um, you know I, I moved out to California and went to music school and I, after that I moved to Nashville and, you know I was playing guitar on the road and just kind of living that life and 
chasing my, my dreams and in hopes that that's, that's what happiness would be for me is just my career and, you know, achieving my own personal goals. Why did you come to the creek for the first time when you came here? Well, I first came to the creek because my sister-in-law bugged me to death. Bugged me to death. I decided to come and at the time, you know, where I didn't have God in my life at all, I was, I was hurting. I would do just about anything to feel good. And this was just kind of like, you know, just a shot in the dark, like, well, maybe they'll say something to give me some encouragement. There was no big moment, but I didn't walk away and say, I'm never coming back. You know, I just listened to the message and eventually it just really clicked for me. One night, it just, it struck me. I asked Jesus into my heart and um, yeah, went to sleep. Then the next time I came to church with Brittany, I hadn't said anything to anybody. And uh, I pulled out the membership card and I started filling out. She's like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm, I'm filling me out a membership card. <laughs> what was it about what you heard? Or um, can you even pinpoint it? I don't know. Maybe it's just something you sensed uh, that, that said, you know what, I, I believe. When you're a non-believer, you're pretty much, I felt like at least that it's me against the world. You know, I'm responsible for everything. You know, there's no help. I love the fact that that people are, are walking in faith and doing good things, trying to do good things. And I'm telling you, that, that doesn't happen, you know, on such a scale when you're just you know, a non-believer and just casually going through life, you don't have a group of people, at least I certainly didn't, that, that behave like that. It definitely helps to have a group of people that are, are just loving on you, you know. And being a part of that and, and knowing God's grace, that gives you incentive to want to do that too. I don't know if you know this, but, you know, Logan and Brittany, your brother and sister-in-law, we're in our, group, our small group. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Uh, so in the discipleship group, we would be in this living room right here in this house. And they would be asking us to pray for you. And we would sit in there and we'd pray for you, for Kelly's hands. I needed it. <laughs> uh, That's awesome. It's just crazy to think, you know, they were they loved you so much. They wanted this for you so bad. And, and yeah. that they would bring that to us and then here you sit. Well, one important thing to take away from that is that if you're if you're out in the world and you know not believing you know when you hear someone say like I, i'll come to church with me you know you, you would like it some you know it's it can be kind of offensive because you're like i don't i don't need that i'm doing fine you know i pay my bills you know I'm not not into anything but really what they're saying is that i want you to feel what i feel and experience what i'm experiencing it's a great thing it's not you know, we're not trying to get you in here to say, you know, you straighten up or it's, it's going to be, you know, pitched into Hades. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. that's not, it's not the message. It's a message of, of grace. So now you're, how do you understand grace? I understand it as like what, what Jesus did was, I mean, it was, it was everything. It's, it's so big that there's nothing I can do to, to take it away or to make it better.
Jesus showed up and he made everything better. And he offered better to us. And the message of the church became this right here. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ and he forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the charge of legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Every moment of resistance and rebellion, Jesus took every sin we would ever commit and he nailed it on the cross and he stepped into that penalty for you and for me. And there he experienced the death and the destruction of sin so that we would never have to. God chose to die so you wouldn't have to. He died in your place so that you would never have to face the sin and the destruction of sin. And so he invites us to something better, forgiveness from all of our sin. Because on the cross, Jesus lifted up his voice and he said, it is finished. To Telestai in the Greek, paid in full. And there on the page where my sins were written down, one word, forgiven. Father, speak to our hearts. Our eyes are closed, our heads are bowed. If you're here and you've never trusted Jesus, you've never taken a step of faith to trust what Jesus did on your behalf. Perhaps you've been running away and you thought God was angry, but he's not trying to chase you down to pay you back. He wants to win you back. I wanna give you an opportunity to pray a simple prayer that says, Father, thank you for loving me. And right now, I place my trust in Jesus. Not because of what I have done for you or ever could do for you, but because of what you have done for me. That you took my place because you loved me so that I could go free from the penalty, from the power of sin. In Jesus' name.